2: As the year comes to a close, we were so very lucky to hear so many incredible stories this year on grief encounters. Looking back at all the episodes, it's actually quite overwhelming and such a beautiful thing that these people came in and shared these stories with us. So many of you have reached out and told us that this has helped in some small way. And that's exactly why we set this up. So we're going to have a look back at some of these episodes. The first clip that we're going to hear is from Kathleen Cheda, and it's definitely one of the most memorable, memorable conversations I've ever had. She describes the truly harrowing moment of hearing about the death of her two sons, Owen and Rory, by their father, Sanjeev, in 2013.
3: It would have been normal for them to have been with mm-hmm. them. Um, uh, they'd have wondered why they were away overnight. I think that anyway mm. but but other than that I would have said there wasn't anything that they would have necessarily been been concerned about at that stage but um and yeah even throughout that whole night and the next day it was okay he's going to be scared he's going to be wondering he's going to wonder what can he do what where can he go where can he turn he's panicked he's panicked because he's been found out he's panicked because he's afraid I'm going to kick him out mm. or whatever but I always felt at that time that the worst that the boys would be would been scared. Mm. Um, Him actually hurting them in any way until it was confirmed was not something I could have ever, ever have imagined. Mm. When did the news come through to you
4: that what had happened because he, <laughs> had crashed, happened. The he crashed the with car with the kids in the
3: boot. So um, throughout that morning, uh, I suppose various things were happening. Guards were coming and going and I had to, to give a statement. Um, and it was <laughs> in hindsight now, when I, when I think about it, we'd gone into the sunroom, which is just off the sitting room. It was a quiet little spot and I was sat with one of the detectives and um, I had my phone with me because there would have been various phone calls coming through um, and I when he sat down and he started off with, uh, so Kathleen, you were born here in Ballinkillen. And I was like, mm. oh my, how, how much of my life do you mm. <laughs> actually need to know? And it literally was from then all the way through to meeting Sanj and, and sort of our relationship, things like that. Um, and, and that continued for, I have no idea, sort of the time scale on it. But the next thing, the phone rang and it was a number that I didn't recognise. Um. So I answered it again. Lots of numbers were coming through. The guards, various, uh, etc. I answered it, and it was Sand on the other end of the, oh. the line, and it was like, <gasps> and you go into this this strange phase. I've seen all the detective te- mm. um uh, uh, things on on television, where you go, you keep him talking. You, you know, you keep him talking. So I'd made eye contact with the detective that was with me and um, it was like, OK, I needed to keep him talking here now. Uh, where are you? What's what's happened? Where are the boys? And he the first thing Sam said to me was there's been a crash. And um, uh, he said uh, the the boys are dead in the back were the words. So he's the one that actually told me. Um, himself and um, I, and I I kind of I dropped the phone at that stage um, or, or handed it straight over to the, the detective I, I, it's all a bit hazy yeah. but I remember walking out and, and everybody had realized that because it's glass doors on the into the sitting room and and sort of anybody that was there, my parents and that realized that something's going on. And um, so they were watching what was was inside. And the next thing they see me just um, falling apart. So um, I walk back out into the sitting room and I remember sitting down and and I remember and I have no idea the time frame on this, but I remember sitting there staring, looking at the detective going, it can't be true. It can't be true.
2: This one really stands out in my mind. We were so lucky to meet the extraordinarily talented and beautifully sensitive Paul Harrington last January, who lost four members of his family from cancer since 2002. In the interview, he speaks about his incredibly close relationship with his sister Siobhan and the time that they shared together before she passed away.
5: I can't put a timeline on it. It could have been a year, two years after uh, Siobhan died and, you know, it's funny, I always remember sitting with her um, when she was dying and she was asking me about singing songs at her funeral and stuff like that and, and stuff like that. Isn't that funny how you say that? Mm. Uh, no, just singing songs at her funeral. And uh, I remember, again, at a I had a terrible trauma at her funeral she asked me to sing uh, the song Vincent by Don McLean the, about Vincent Van Gogh and at the end of the song this never happened to me before I got in a loop on a line and I couldn't get out of it and I, I was so upset about this you know And I said, God, and I was there, I'll have to. I I really, I will. I'll make that up to you sometime, you know. And she kind of said to me, she said, like, because she and I were thick as thieves, you know. Growing, I I, I was the the baby, and then she was the next up. There's four years between us. Mm. I always remember her dragging me around the place, dragging me around the house, you know. I mean, she she was she didn't see her fiftieth birthday, forty nine years of age, and she said to me, she said, you know you know don't forget me and I'm kind of saying God you know how How in the name of God could I forget you you know and uh, some years later um, I had this incredible dream and because I would dream to this day not as frequently but uh, to this day you wake up thinking who's alive and who's dead in your family and I, almost every day, I would do a do a count. You'd wake up and say, "Who's here? Who's, who's?" And sometimes you'd be dreaming about somebody who's gone, mm. and it'd be so real. But this was this was the most real thing I think I've ever experienced in terms of a dream or or a visitation, I suppose. And you know, I remember seeing her, and I just was seeing her. Th- she didn't speak. She'd long hair uh, when she was kind of a teenager into her into her twenties. Mm. She didn't have when she died, but this is how I saw her and she had this kind of white ribbed kind of wool jumper and everything was white and she was just there and I was kind of talking to her she wasn't saying anything and then I I said ah and I kind of said God I was just reflecting on what she was like back in those days and and I said ah, I get it I said you're happy now I can see it mm-hmm. I can you know I can see it in your smile I can see the whole thing now I said you've moved across or you're in heaven or whatever the whatever the the term might be but the the thing was she looked happy content at peace I sometimes wonder <laughs> where four or five years ago I was sitting um, rehearsing for something completely different with my old Eurovision comrade brother in arms Charlie McGettigan who again uh, you know he sadly lost his son Shane and that I'll never forget I mean so you can imagine him I remember sitting with him on an aircraft who were travelling might have been two years after Shane had died and I I wanted to talk about it and talk about Shane to him in some way shape or form and I said you don't mind me bringing this up do you and he said uh, he said mind he said he said, that's all I think about. He said, thoughts we used to share. And I know you're happy now. I see it in your face. Because it's so easy for people who are not in the direct line of fire to assume that people have moved on a little bit.
2: We've been very lucky to keep in contact with this guest over Twitter over the last year, and he's been very supportive of what we do and us with him. Um, We've had some incredibly inspirational guests on the podcast, and Stephen Teep is definitely one that's made a huge impression on us all and our listeners. Stephen's beautiful wife, Irene, passed away in 2017, and in the months following it came out that they were one of the families to be affected by the cervical cancer scandal that claimed the lives of many Irish women during this period. Here he speaks about his decision to go searching for answers and accountability.
6: I get asked a lot like is when will this all stop and when will we get mm-hmm. to an end of it and to be honest with you I don't know mm-hmm. um, I'm yet to go home after something we've achieved something and sit down on the couch put the feet up and go oh that was a good day yeah. part of this campaign every day I go home my mind and my brain is just tuned in okay mm-hmm. what's next mm-hmm. and I've been in this I think a lot of people who so have come across me since this um whole scandal broke last April. Tink think this fight only began last April. But this began in September 2015 when Irene was diagnosed with cervical cancer. I've been fighting every day since then. For two years it was with Irene mm. by my side and then she passed away. It's myself with the two boys. But this is, seems to be just the only frame of mind I have mm. right now. And mm. where, when will the end come? I honestly don't know. But as long as I can still be a father to Oscar and Noah, Give them a hundred percent but i want to take them on this with me as well mm. they have to be able to see this as well you know and um, to see exactly what um, such tragic events that happened to their mother had triggered and show them you know look you have to get up and do something you know when you're faced with two options do something or do nothing mm. what are you going to pick for me i decided to do something and it was based on them and to show mm. them so
2: Addiction has been a topic that has come up in various forms over the past 12 months, and Neve O'Donoghue spoke to us about how we need to stop treating those with addiction problems in a dehumanizing way. Neve produced an incredible podcast called The Gospel According to Matthew, where she sat down with her brother to discuss his own issues with addiction. Here she is speaking to Venetia and I about how it leads to such heartbreak.
7: Matthew had a very complex um, life three months before he passed away. He was doing incredibly well for about six months and then he unfortunately went back down the drug-using route and nobody knew about it and he was doing it in secrecy. And at that stage, the only option that my mum saw fit was to get him a one-way ticket to England so he could start a new life and be safe and be away from drugs, be away from debt and just to try and give him a chance. And I'll never forget the morning that my mum sent him on the ferry and I think she thought she'd never see him again and for a while he did really well, he went through cold turkey again as he had done many times previous Mm. but unfortunately addicts follow the drug and he he came back to Ireland and he got himself riddled with debt. he got himself involved with criminal activity and, and people who were anything but nice and he told nobody, he hid it
2: this person and I have, I would say, become friends since she was a guest on the podcast. Back in April, we were joined in studio by Jess Dorn and Linus to talk about the importance of storing memories and how it can aid and soothe a person's bereavement. In this clip, Jess also discusses the timeless nature of grief and how there are no set stages or time frames in place that will be the same for everyone. I mean, I, I've said it before. I. I I know it's not just I don't believe
8: or I don't agree there are not five stages of grief if you go through 95 (laughs) stages of grief that's fine that's completely and stages makes it sound like there's a finish line Mm. and I mean I'm nearly 21 years on and there's no finish line and in fact I mean it's taken me a long time to sort of actively deal or create something to help me deal with my grief but it's because of that's the phase of life that I'm in you know I have Children, my mum would have had grandchildren. I have been not stricken by grief, but really, really, um you know, sideswiped, we've used that term already, but sideswiped by grief more often in the last decade than I have in the preceding decade because, because I see so much. Yeah, there, and because that. I see what she you know, would have it's loved missing. to see. And, mm. you know, because my 20s, I mean, your 20s are your 20s, mm. and I just went off. I, I probably didn't really deal with it properly. I, you know, I, I went to university. It was all quite hedonistic. And then I I was talking about this with my, my great friend, um, Fiona, and I kind of went through my entire life story with her recently. And um, I seem to have needed a complete change in my life every mm-hmm. so often. So, you know, I did a degree in fashion design and then I worked in fashion for a few years here in Dublin and then I needed I just needed out of Ireland mm. I needed out of a relationship at the time and I moved to South Africa I trained to be a field guide and I worked with lions for a year and <laughs> lived in a caravan with no electricity <laughs> I mean that is really going Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I love
4: it escapism exactly or a change is as look, good as a yeah, rest or, it could be just some yeah. day in the morning at work just going i need to, to, to do something i need to change i don't this know what situation. it is i need yeah. to do something yeah. whether it's exciting or different yeah. or just something and it's that activity i've
8: i've heard a lot from um you know experts in grief like counselors and and uh that sort of thing saying you know you have to be active in your grief and we've mm. talked about lots of times you know actively creating a memory book and well everything needs digitally supported so this mm. is the digital support
2: During the Dublin Pride Festival, Venetia was really fortunate to speak with Tony Walsh and I'm really, really bummed I missed out on this one, who is one of the most instrumental gay rights activists the country has ever seen. Tony spoke to us about the AIDS crisis during the 80s and 90s and the stigma, guilt and grief that has stuck with much of the community ever since.
9: I lived through the AIDS crisis and watched countless friends and lovers die. I mean, the last time I counted, and that was several years ago, It uh, shaded 40 people in London and Dublin. And while that was happening, I always thought, no matter how much I'm attempting to use safer sex, I'm going to be next on the list. And then you find you survive. But here's the thing. It gets even more complicated then (laughs) because I became positive 10 years after the advent of antiretroviral therapies. In 2005, I was raped. And I'd spent a lifetime using condoms only to find myself then 10 years later becoming uh, HIV positive at a time when it's simply a long-term illness long-term condition and i can live a normal life and that added a whole other layer of guilt (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we laughed and cried our way through the next interview as the times writer and podcaster Emily Dean joined us for one of our London sessions we almost didn't get there, but here we are to talk about the unexpected side effects that come with grief and how it is often conducive to creating rifts and drama within families. How long was it between uh, losing your sister that you lost your parents? And my parents. Like, yeah.
9: Mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. I call it whack a because you're <laughs> yeah. sort of, you know, it's that fairground game where you're thinking, oh, I'm just dealing with that. Oh no, another thing's yeah. popping up. And it's yeah. it's impossible to to sort of keep tabs on all those yeah. emotions that, and I, so after my sister died, and another thing that I didn't realise was quite, I thought it was like movies where we'd all cry and everyone would be very, <laughs> there'd be all this warmth and there'd be no complications. And of course,
1: to her things we to all know it's not yeah. like that.
9: And it brings up strange things. Families mm. dynamics get destroyed mm. and I, it's like a rock being lifted mm. up and suddenly everyone's role has changed mm. and I don't know if that's something you guys experienced We actually literally <laughs> we talked about yeah. that as well on the plane the
4: whole I think th- I mean like I've experienced people who just can't be in the house um, mainly male friends mm. because they just you know it's mm. just they, they they're in out just can't other people sort of just don't want to talk about it Other people want to talk about it all the time. Mm. You know, and I just think people... And one thing we've discovered with this podcast is everybody grieves so totally differently. Yeah. And whereas I was initially would get angry with somebody not grieving the way I thought they should be grieving, now I realise that you've got to let people grieve the way they grieve. Mm. And that's how they do it. And not just because you're the person
2: who's lost someone, because they have too.
9: Yeah, Mm. yes, exactly. And you you do... sorry are you going to say
2: no I was just going to say I think that what you said is is so true like I I was I I was completely in the same boat where I thought it was going to be about crying I thought it was going to be about sadness I thought maybe it would be about depression but I didn't think it was going to be about anger and family riffs Mm -hmm. and battles about things you didn't even understand and drawing lines in the set and like all of those things just shocked me that that was part of it because it felt like things are already so hard why are we engaging in this but actually now I see it so much as part of grief that Mm. everyone is is struggling and that's a natural part of that struggle
7: this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive and june olive and june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which
2: We've made a lot of friends in recording the podcast over the past year, and Megan Devine is definitely on that list. I feel very, very lucky that Megan is in my life. Um, Even our chats on Instagram on an almost daily basis have been a really cathartic and wonderful experience. Megan is an incredible writer and grief advocate based in Portland, and her book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, is an incredible resource for those at any point in their grief. Here she breaks down some of the common misconceptions around how we feel after the loss of a loved one. I think you
11: bring up another good point. too. Can we just touch on it for a second? Yeah, of course. Um, You said you didn't feel anything for the first couple of months. Sometimes people are like, what is going on? I should have more feelings here. I should be really sad. Like Mm -hmm. humans are complex creatures and you've never had to live without your mom before. This was the first and only time your mom died. We have no idea how you're going to respond to that. However you respond is how you respond. Right. I think we do that relentless self-inquiry, self-interrogation. What's wrong with me? Because we've internalized the, the cultural messages about grief, too, that it's supposed to look a certain way and last a certain amount of time. You're supposed to cry, rend your garments, and be a little bit morose and weepy, but not too much mm. for a certain amount of time and then be done. And if you don't do that, well, then you're, you're in denial, right? Whether we tell ourselves that or people around us tell us that, like, there are so many ways that that faulty understanding of the reality of grief um, affects and infects. Everybody. This is why it's so important to tell the truth about this stuff so that grieving people understand that however they respond to the loss of someone they love is okay. And so that support people, both professional and personal, have more understanding and more compassion compassion and more really useful skills with how to respond to such things instead of just flailing around making things worse.
2: There have been many surprises along the way when recording the podcast this year, but none more so than the amount of laughter that Venetia and I would share with our guests. A.B. Philbin Bowman joined us in September to tell us about his relationship with his brother Jonathan, and this chat featured so many incredible anecdotes that summed up just how special he was.
4: I remember him sending like Albert Reynolds who was a T-shirt at the time to a Tina Turner concert because he knew Albert was a big Tina Turner fan and he also knew that they had tickets to give away and they went let's just give them to the Taoiseach and see if he'll like, review the concert for us <laughs> but it's so brilliant like, yeah, that yeah. is such a brilliant <laughs> thing yeah. to yeah. do so, so he yeah. had he's got kind of really mischievous ideas. I remember he, did, he had a, a skit once where he phoned up a cleaning company and he was basically pretending to be a mobster who just really needed very discreet cleaners who would like clean everything <laughs> up but like could keep a secret and he was sort of letting on hints that this is what was going on and the person on the phone was getting sort of gradually more and more uncomfortable. And he was just full of like really crazy fun ideas and he was as you say, a bit of a force of nature, but he also loved winding people up like at home it used to drive me mad. He would sometimes take a position that he didn't even agree with himself just because he enjoyed arguing so much mm. that he would like to kind of win at the family dinner
1: table.
2: I felt like it was a really special day when I got to do this episode. Since starting the podcast, we've had the opportunity to learn about the lives of some truly incredible people that have touched Ireland and beyond in so many ways. I spoke to Don Morgan about his father, Dermot, back in October, and he regaled us with so many amazing stories about what he was like off screen and who the real Dermot Morgan really was. There's so much effort that goes into pretending and like physical and mental emotional effort into like protecting people from it mm-hmm. especially probably i can imagine and maybe i'm wrong and, and definitely please you know like i would imagine you guys had to be protective of the grief because so many people were mourning him mm. Um, but it was your grief and it was your father and it was your family mm-hmm. which is a very different thing than this person who was this icon in in ireland who meant so much and not just ireland but beyond who meant so much to so many people but it was your
12: loss
10: yeah i mean i i think that you you sort of have to put all those different people into different kind of boxes and i mean he was no different to a lot of other people which is the Mm. fact that he was he had different personas he was a dad he was a brother he was a friend he was someone on telly you know i mean a lot of time i mean i remember when i was a teacher for instance i was teaching at school in and it was a lovely class but they all had iPads and were Googling me. And then after a while they said, are you Father Ted's son? Mm. And I was going, oh, oh, yeah. yes, yes, I am. <laughs> and I, but at this age, I'd learned, you know, don't get defensive. Enjoy. Mm-hmm. It, they think it's brilliant. Yeah, they think it's absolutely course. fantastic. But, I mean, I know that the, the idea of, of uh, you know, who are, who are you grieving? I mean, certainly when I think about my dad, I don't, I don't grieve for the actor necessarily. Mm. I, gr- I mean, I grieve. To a certain extent, for the loss of opportunity, and I, I agree to a certain extent about the fact that, as amazing as Father Ted is, I wish that um, he could have been remembered for, for his other work, but that's not taking away from that. It's, it's, it's obviously a fantastic show, and, and you know, he's uh, he's one of the immortals. I know I,
2: I saw when you described that I thought that was like so fitting um just one of the one of the immortals I think that's just incredible um the other thing I really um wanted to ask you about and uh I've been through it myself. My daughter was born after both my parents had died. I love to imagine what they would have been like with their grandchildren, and I love to think about it. But at the same time, I find it very, very hard to imagine something like that. One of the highlights of the year was undoubtedly our live show at the Dublin premiere of Git Was Here, a Lorcan Fox movie about the life and legacy of his friend Chris Byrne. We were incredibly nervous, but we did it and we were joined on stage at the Sugar Club by Lorcan and Chris's wife, Caroline, to learn more about his life and the final few months before he died.
4: For anyone who walks down the south wall uh, quite a bit, down to the lighthouse, it's lovely to put the mural in context. What's it like though, watching the documentary and seeing get come to life again and seeing his personality, particularly previous to when he got sick?
13: I was mentioning it to you there before the interview. Um, It took me a long time to remember the healthy Chris, Mm. um, especially throughout his period of being unwell um, and what the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy and the treatment did to him, what the surgery did to him. So I suppose it's only in the last six months I've started to remember the Chris that I, as I said in the documentary, the Chris that I fell in love with. So... I'd kind of eliminated the sick Chris from my head until I saw the documentary last Tuesday week, and I remember I mentioned it to Lorcan. Um, It's quite difficult. I suppose towards the very end there, you saw photographs of Chris Holden, his nephew, Josh, his sister's baby boy, and I'd forgotten that, Chris. And it's Christmas 2015, Chris came to Clare. It was his last Christmas. Um, I remember looking at him that Christmas and going, Jesus, this fella's not going anywhere anytime Mm. soon. Um, And he passed away three months later. But that's how much I was in denial with Mm. his illness and his sickness. Even though Jodie and I had met his oncologist probably two weeks before Christmas and told us that there was a limited amount of time left. But I think we were just in denial. We were just constantly hope. Mm. living in hope that... So you sort of need to keep moving yeah. forward when somebody so close to you is
4: that sick. Is that yeah. sort of you, you almost... You can't
13: give up. Yeah. yeah. And that Christmas passed, and I remember we were due to go to Ring's End for New Year's Day for dinner down to Chris's parents' house, Jodie Nidell and Chris had a fall on New Year's morning, and I remember having to get a neighbour of ours in Lucan to to come and assist. Um, um But Jodie Nidell with the help of... Um, Jimmy and Eileen, there um, brought the whole dinner out on New Year's evening. Um, we were sitting around the table that evening and uh, Chris announced that evening that he wasn't going having any more treatment. So he said that he felt that the treatment wasn't working and he was going to discontinue it. Um, I suppose at that stage he realised that it wasn't doing any more for him um, and he realised he was probably looking at end of life as well. It was probably hard hard for for us to swallow as his partner and his wife and his parents, even though we had been told probably three weeks previous to that, that the treatment wasn't going to do anything more for him other than help his mind.
2: Just this month, Venetia and I sat in with Sean Kennedy, who is a writer and performer, and he shared with us the most personal and heartbreaking story of his life. Sean spent nine weeks in Australia caring for his terminally ill mother, who was suffering abuse at the hands of an ex-partner. I think this is probably one of the most genuine, beautiful and incredible stories I've ever heard. And here Sean speaks about his mother's final few days.
12: Was to answer your earlier question about it happening that she'd met this man very similar to my father in a lot of ways. She said this thing to me, she was like, why did I always go for the bird with the broken wing? You know, she said, I just wanted to love him and I wanted to see the good in him. And every time he did something, I just wanted to see that he was capable of love and he just took advantage of me over and over and over again.
2: What did it mean to you, Sean, that she was able to reach this
12: point before she died and you were there with her? Um, It was really sad because I felt like it was mixed because I I wanted to have had this with her so much Mm. sooner, you know. I wanted to have um, spent more of my life with her and It was all very intense because I didn't know how close she was to the end at that point.
2: We really want to thank all of our guests for being so generous with their time and their stories this year. You've truly helped so many people. You've helped us and we hope in some way it's helped you too. We look forward to hearing more stories of love next year.